Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Do Not Resist is an urgent and powerful exploration of the rapid militarization of the police in the United States. Starting on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, as the community grapples with the death of Michael Brown, Do Not Resist, the directorial debut of Detropia cinematographer Craig Atkinson, offers a stunning look at the current state of policing in America and a glimpse into the future. The Tribeca Film Festival winner for Best Documentary puts viewers in the center of the action from a ride-along in South Carolina SWAT team and inside a police training seminar that teaches the importance of righteous violence to the floor of the congressional hearing on the proliferation of military equipment in small-town police departments. This is a remarkable film, and, and it's a comprehensive overview of where we are and where we are heading, and uh, the film is called do Not Resist, and we're so honored to have with us today the director of that film. That would be Craig Atkinson. Craig, welcome to Film School. Oh, thanks so much for having us. I, I agree with that intro. It was a great intro. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're very you. welcome. And um, I I mentioned in the in the uh, opening, uh, Detropia, uh, I remember that film. Um, is that Was that part of the rationale, reasoning for you to to pursue this topic what was it about uh the militarization of the police uh, and that brought you to want to do a, a, a film about it well my my initial uh curiosity or interest in the topic was the fact that my father was a police officer mm-hmm. for 29 years outside of detroit and he was actually a swat officer for 13 of those years and so i kind of grew up with the the war on drugs era of policing just kind of in the background of my life and uh, I hadn't really thought about SWAT or anything to do with SWAT um, since he retired in 2002 until I saw the uh, aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. And that was the first time that I had seen the level of equipment that we saw on that day. Uh, but also, more than anything, it was the officer's mentality which struck me because it seemed as though it was more of an occupying force versus a, a model, let's say, of, of, of a protect-and-serve model. And I had subsequently went up and interviewed people who were there during the events and said that, yes, you know, police were entering our homes despite our uh, saying that we didn't want them to enter and search the homes. Uh, we got pulled out of our houses, handcuffed, um, sometimes face down on the front lawn for as much as six hours, never being told why we're being detained, never having any charges subsequently filed. And so when I, when I, when I saw all this play out and then I heard the testimony of citizens, I just felt like there was a departure from what I remember my dad's era of policing or in SWAT to be about. And by no means was that era of policing perfect, but it just, it, it seemed that it had, it had something had shifted. And so that was my initial interest in the, in the topic. And this was, you know, about a year prior to the events in Ferguson. So we started and in looking, uh, you know, into the topic um, as early as uh, April of 2013. Well, in getting into this topic, what was sort of the entry point for you? Where did you, when you sort of, did you sit down and sort of map out the different aspects of policing? Obviously, you're very familiar with it from your 
your time with your dad. Um, but what was just sort of the process of deciding which thread to pull on first? Well, early on, I, I wanted to do something that was nationally relevant. So uh, the intention was to span out and to cover as many states as we could and to as many departments in those states as we could because I knew that police office, uh, police, you know, policing uh, is you know fairly regional. And, um, you know, things, uh, I didn't want, um, you know, uh, to end up with the film and say, oh, well, we don't police like that here. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. different in this part of the country. I wanted to see what it was looking like across the board. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, early on when I'm sharing the idea that I want to do a topic on the militarization of police or what has happened in police issues, most people thought that I was off the rails, like a, con a conspiracy theorist or something like this. And so... Um, you know, because this was a year prior to, to Ferguson and it hadn't really you know, approached the national conversation or the level of the national conversation just yet. And so with that um, feedback that I was getting, I knew that I couldn't really do a film that had talking heads or expert witnesses because it was just going to be my narrative you mm -hmm. know, being put through. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I really need to put the camera into scenes where we could observe and, you know, have the audience be able to observe these scenes, um, you know, uh, unfold. And I, I'd always resented the way that, say, like TV show Cops, the, you know, that's been on the air since 1989, has always portrayed, yeah. um, you know, the power dynamic, which is always basically glorifying the officers and, and, and accusing the condemned or, you know, yeah. uh, the suspects. And it's always pixelated faces. And so I knew that I wanted to do something where we weren't going to do either. We were going to put the camera right in the middle of the situation let the scenes play out and let the audience, you know, draw their own conclusions. And so that was our approach from the, be the beginning. And then it was just a process of getting the camera in those certain, in those situations. Um, I would approach police departments more, more often than not in person, um, because if I sent an email or made a phone call, it, it fell on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was a police chief's convention in 2013. So I got a press pass and started walking around the convention floor and, bumping into officers and chiefs and explaining them what I wanted to do and basically, you know, offer the only thing I had to offer, which was that I, I could feedback an authentic portrayal of whatever we do together, mm -hmm. that I wasn't going to manipulate the footage. I wasn't going to, you know, um, re-edit it in such a way to sensationalize it. And, um, you know, we found officers that were sympathetic to that and gave us an opportunity to, to go out into the field with them. And I do, I really like the cross-section that you were able to pull together for Do Not Resist. Uh, as you described it, a, basically a ride-along with a SWAT team, um, going to this convention uh, to hear the uh, the teach teachings, if you will, of, um, and I've forgotten his name right off the top of my head. Uh, Dave Grossman is who we feature in the film. Dave Gross-Grossman. And, by the, your account, the the most sought-after sort of um, conductor of these seminars on police philosophy, mm -hmm. police. Uh, how would you characterize what he what he has to to offer as a? Well, uh, Dave Grossman has been teaching law enforcement for over eighteen years now, mm -hmm. and if you you know if you look at his calendar online, he's booked nearly. Uh, every single day, certainly uh, every week, he has engagements with police departments throughout the country. And prior to getting into teaching law enforcement, he spent 25 years helping uh, the military improve their kill ratio. So historically speaking, it's very difficult for humans to kill other humans, even in a war zone, because of the self-preservation mechanisms that all species have. 
And so the military had to come up with a way, if they were going to, quote, win wars, to interrupt that natural inclination not to kill another species uh, so that they could improve the kill ratio. And how they did this was a process of desensitizing and through you know, shooting pop-up targets to condition the individual to shoot reflexively and to shoot as a conditioned response. And so, you know, while that could be effective, I mean, I think that we could also bring into question if that's an ethical thing to do to an individual to begin with. Mm -hmm. And if we are going to do that to people, we better make sure we're sending them into wars that are worthwhile fighting. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's say that that is effective for a war zone. Well, David Grossman has since left the military, and he's teaching the exact same philosophy to domestic police forces. And so I think it's interesting to note that the officer that killed Philando Castile, this is the individual that we saw in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, and had his life slip away via Facebook with a four-month-old uh, or four-year-old uh, daughter in the back seat after he had reached for his wallet uh, to get it to the officer who requested it. Well, that officer who shot him six times while he was reaching for his uh, wallet had attended one of Dave Grossman's seminars uh, you know, in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I hear that and when I sat through his training session, it really started to point me to an area that I think we could look to for police reform, because I think that uh, oftentimes it's a training issue when you're, um, you know, telling officers that they're men and women of violence. And, you know, Dave Grossman claims that he's preparing, you know, officers for the next 9-11. And while we're waiting for the next 9-11, you know, there's 63 million police citizen interactions every year, um, many of which only require de-escalation and not the level of violence that you might have to face with a a terrorist event. And so, you know, I think it's extremely negligent to think that you can train this philosophy and only deploy it for the next 9-11 and not think that it's going to bleed into, you know, all of your thinking, um, you know, in all of your traffic stops and all of your police work. And And I think that it has. And I think that that's part of the reason why you start to see people reaching for wallets and end up getting killed um, when you when you know that the background philosophy and training um, actually supports that. Right. Well, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with uh, Craig Atkinson, and he is the director of a new documentary called Do Not Resist. It is opening today, October 14th, at the Lemley Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, as well as the Lemley Playhouse 7 in Pasadena. And again, you, you know, there's just so many things in this film uh, that are relevant and important, and each one of them is almost uh, begs to be a, a documentary unto itself. Um, but I And one of the beautiful things about um, Do Not Resist is you walk us it's kind of the frog in the in the boiling water a little bit. Uh, As the film progresses, as the film moves forward, it gets progressively a little more frightening in terms of police action, their interaction with people, the capability, the technological capability, the firepower. And then we end with this sort of glimpse into um, what can only be described as sort of pre pre crime um, you know uh, the old, the the this idea that you can predict crime and you can arrest people before they've committed a crime, or you can tell mothers right. not to have children because they're fifty percent likely by the age of eighteen to kill someone. This stuff is Correct. just truly, truly frightening stuff. Um, and I, I I'm just going to editorialize just a little bit. I do want to get to the stuff that is discussed in terms of this 
this uh, you know predictive behavior stuff. But it does feel like there's sort of a perfect storm here happening with uh, our police forces and the and the men and women who are becoming policemen. We have had the longest war period in our history going back. If you want to go back to 1991, you can in terms of our involvement in Iraq. But I'm just talking about Afghanistan and Iraq. You have mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of returning veterans with the kind of skill set it is increasingly sought after by police forces. These people have been in urban environments where they were they were forced to make quick decisions about friend or foe. And unfortunately, that's a mentality that seems to be happening here now in our country, where police increasingly look at the citizenry as friend or foe. If I'm mischaracterizing this, please let me know. But as you have a comment on that, does, does this sound like we're getting people into the into our into policing who have or not all of them, but a lot of them are coming out of a military environment? Sure, you know, and I can uh, you know say that anecdotally, at least you know, forty percent of every SWAT team that we went out with, forty uh, percent of the personnel was you know were ex-military, and that's consistent with the ACLU findings as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, just being uh, uh, ex-military is, is not necessarily a, a bad thing because I did you know of course observe officers who had told me that they had been blown up in some of the armored vehicles that we had shown in the film, which is the MRAP. The MRAP yeah. Some of them testified that they had extreme PTSD when they had returned home for war, but they assured us that. You know that no longer was an issue. Um, that is one subset of uh, military personnel coming back. But there's another subset um, which actually can be a tremendous asset on the SWAT teams or in the force, and that's only because that the way that we conducted our wars overseas recently is that the military was under a model of protect, uh, of um, winning the hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And so they had been trained significantly to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an important example to point out that happened only three weeks ago in, in West Virginia, where there was a situation where it was a suicide by cop scenario. There was a, a young black man who no longer wanted to live, and he was going to have a cop shoot him in order to you know, end his life. And mm-hmm. he had a gun, which turned out to be unloaded, but he had a gun by his side. Mm-hmm. And the uh, officer responding was at military, and he said, you know, I'm not going to shoot you today. I don't, I don't have to shoot you today. And he's de-escalating the individual. And the reason why he was able to do this is because he had the military training to de-escalate. Well, two other officers ran up behind the guy and shot him in the back of the head and killed him. Mm. The officer that didn't shoot the guy ended up getting fired for dereliction of duty because he, they, they said that he put the other officers who ended up shooting the guy in the back of the head at risk. Mm-hmm. And so it's unfortunate that, you know, that's, the message that we're sending to people that if you choose to de-escalate, you could lose your job. And I just think that um, there was a, you know, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post um, not too long ago that says, hey, maybe we're not militarized enough. Of course, that's a very provocative title, but what it meant was, you know, in the military, there's distinct use of force continuum. And if you don't follow that, you know, the military has a good track record of holding officers accountable. And in domestic police work, you know, the rules of engagement are a little bit uh, more blurred, and certainly we've seen that officers are not being held accountable. So it really is a mixed bag as far as military personnel on teams. It can be a, an asset, and it, and it can be a, a significant downfall as well. Yeah, and, and I can appreciate what you're saying. I think in some sense, people who have been in war, who have been in a n- numerous, very intense, uh, anxiety-inducing um, situations and have mm-hmm. been able to kind of come through it 
and understand that you you do have time to react. You do have things you, you can do, as you're describing, to de-escalate mm-hmm. that situation. That is a very valuable um, asset, and that is to be um, encouraged. Mm-hmm. But also, when you see uh, you know somebody like Grossman who is out there talking about this righteous violence, and you're the guy, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, you're the guy on the bridge with the cape and all that kind mm-hmm. of nonsense. Well, I mean, it's a ment- it's it's. I mean, this sort of continuum of full spectrum domination that you know that that's the part that bothers me. People, mm-hmm. police, sure. and and the military yeah. don't go into a situation that they know that they can't absolutely by sheer force of firepower win. And sure. if that's your mentality you know, every time you go into a situation, uh, then I think you're it's a predictive situation. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I don't know. And you know the thing is is that, you know, with when you're when you're you know, you get the same tools that you had in Fallujah, the same body armor yeah. and the same yeah. uh, objective to go into the homes. Well if you know anything about condition response and muscle memory, it's very hard to separate, you know, a home right. raid in Fallujah from a home raid in, you know, South Carolina if you're wearing all the same gear and actually doing it the exact same way. So I agree, you know, the the wor- you know, the worst aspect of that is very, you know, is very dark in the yeah. fact that, you know, these uh, military personnel are just continuing the same work that they were doing um, you know, for the, you know, decade and a half that we've been fighting unnecessary wars overseas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I I don't want to put all the emphasis on on one thing here because I do think there are other things at play. I think politics, I think, you know, this congressional hearing, which which is so telling about these MRAFs, these big military vehicles that were used to transport troops around um, the theaters of of battle uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places are now coming home. And and I think there's a there's sort of a truism that I, there's not a war that we've engaged in where some part of it didn't come home, and I think sure. this is one part of that where, where the, these congressmen are asking, or I think senators actually are asking the FBI director, is that am I get that right? The FBI director about uh, no. In this case, it was the DOD, the DOD. DHS, and the yeah, Department of Justice. Yeah, why these. Well, well, there was one instance where there was one policeman in a town who had two, and he had two MRAPs or something, something crazy like that. Right. That's good. Right. But, but I mean, again, the equipment's come home, the attitude has come home a little bit, and I, I, I can understand, and I agree with you. That there are people that have come out of a situation like that better suited to be in in law enforcement, but unfortunately, the I think that's more rare than we'd like to believe it is. But I, I mean, that's just my sure. opinion. I don't know. Well, um, yeah, and you know that that scene as well that you point out that was a, a very disheartening um, scene in the sense that you know it was a fantastic scene when it played out in front of my camera, but you know months later I really did analysis on what happened, and, and to be honest, nothing happened, nothing came of that scene. So when you see you know our elected officials uh, trying to bring to task essentially the mil- military-industrial complex, and yeah. they're not able to, it just begs the question: who's in charge? Yeah, and just and just for our listeners. Uh, they they basically uh, what what was the most vexing to the senators was first of all they were categorizing the the the, the uh, vehicles that they were essentially giving back giving away to police uh, departments around the country and some of them were marked as new or and then he said well they're actually just the category they're almost new and then the question it begs the question which is so you're giving new military weaponry to our police force. And then you're turning around and buying new new military equipment, and you're exactly right. This is the military industrial complex in in full in in full 
uh, view of, of us in this scene because they don't care. It didn't matter. That one guy was just sort of, yeah, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> just, right. I, <laughs> I don't I, see this film, uh, folks. Uh, do not resist. It, it, it's just such a, a, um, a, a subtle, in some ways understated, but as the film progresses, you see more and more and in the last few minutes i have with you i really want to talk about this this idea of we drones have come home to roost they're they're sort of surveilling people and they're in areas and they're predicting crime and then this these algorithms if you will talk to us a little bit about were you surprised by what you saw when you got into this area of the film uh very much so and the reason why we pointed people towards the technology at the end because we realized about halfway through making the film that you know any changes that were actually going to you know take place to the 1033 program which is the program that allows for the transfer of military equipment to domestic police forces or any of the grants that you know the DHS were writing you know all that equipment is is out and no matter if you change the laws now that's that equipment is just not coming back right. and so while you know, the community and police were, you know, being, you know, put at odds with one another. You know, it, it, anytime there's a divide and conquer going on, you want to see, you know, what's going on, you know, underneath it all. And it's usually far more nefarious. And, and what we discovered is, yes, indeed, all of this surveillance technology is now returning back from war because that's how we fought these wars in the last decade. And now that's being given to domestic police forces. And so, um, you know, we spoke with one um individual who took the same NSA platform that the, or I'm sorry, the same IVF platform that the NSA uses to do mass data collection, and he is licensing that same platform to domestic police forces for $1,000 a year subscription, and oftentimes not making the public aware of how this uh, equipment is actually being used. When it comes to the algorithms um, to predict future crime, you know, I think on paper, you know, the technology expert in our film basically says that, you know, it works and, you know, you can use this technology for good or for bad. The problem is I don't see any policies that are being developed to ensure that it's being used for good. And, and you know, human nature, its tendency is to um, use these tools to increase whoever's, you know, in power, to increase their power. The, the other thing that I find very problematic with, you know, running algorithms over mass collection of, of data to predict human behavior is one I don't think human behavior acts you know uh, responds like that and in fact the gentleman who's explaining to us in the film says yes if you're truly unique you know this doesn't work and I said well my god what are we all striving for is to be individuals and to be unique and so to me it's 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 falling flat on its face at, at face value but the other disturbing component is is that the data sets that they're using to run these algorithms are from ComStat data, and ComStat data is a you know a decades-long program of collecting crime stats in a particular area. Well, they started using it as a performance matrix for chiefs. So, you know, if you don't have crime rate going down in your town, you might not get the promotion, you might not get the federal money next year. And like fancy accounting techniques, they started to adjust the way they were accounting for things. For example, taking aggravated assaults and calling them simple assaults to make the crime rate look like it was going down in certain areas. Not everyone was doing this, but there were significant portions of, you know, chiefs and cities who were doing this. And, in fact, Dave Grossman, the trainer, uh, who, you know, said during the same session that I filmed with him, I didn't include in the film, but he's like, you know, police chiefs around the country knows that we know that we've been fudging the numbers on crime data for years. Well, here we are in 2016, and now you have technology experts using that data 
to predict whether or not a human is going to commit a crime before they're even born. And I think that no one is really talking about the fact of, is this data as infallible as we, you know, we think that it is? And is it really um, clean enough data to predict you know, the future health and wellness of, in, in, in the security level of, of humans? I'm not so sure that it is, and, and no one's really considering that. The other troubling component is this idea that you can take the averaging of a group or a data set's um, behaviors, a, a group of people, uh, individuals, that you could take the averaging of their behavior and then apply that to the individual and say that, oh, because all of these pe- the average of all of these people's interaction means that you're going to do something similar. Now, I'm just not so sure that it's constitutionally legal. Um, I think that's a debate that needs to happen as well. And I think it's probably, as you're alluding to, it's probably wrong. And and I can't help but, you know, he we, you touch on the subject. By the way, we're speaking with Craig Atkin, Atkinson. And, uh, the film is Do Not Resist. Um, just in the last uh, minute or so here, uh, he t- in your film, they do touch on race. The one, the one expert who was talking about these algorithms and how we, you know, we've got drones that are parked over cities and now we can line them up. And there's all kinds of things that are coming, people that you really need to know about, and we need to think this stuff through. But I, this this keeps coming back in some crazy way to policing and race. And he said, well, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a factor. We just know it is. And, and more people who know each other are more likely to kill one another. So therefore, we fa- and all these things come into play. But I'm thinking about this data that's old, uh, older, and we we have we're, we still haven't come to grips with how we police parts of our, our society as opposed to other parts of our society and 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 the crime rate may the 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 rate of crime might be the same but the way we police it is completely different and i and mm-hmm. i all of these things are in my head when i'm watching this stuff and and are we are we heading into a, a mechanized era of police you know uh i don't know i mean police unaccountability right i mean it it is we have to work this out we because technology is beginning to take over in ways that we will not be able to completely understand and or manage wow yeah there's such you know the um one thing you know uh, i think that all, like we're crystallizing our old old thinkings about race and we're digitizing right, our old exactly. thinking about race and our old thinking you know like it, you know right now the murder rate is 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 gone up and someone like Dave Grossman says that that's because of the Ferguson effect, because cops are afraid to do their job now. So all of a sudden, that's why all these murders are up, because the cops aren't there, you know, arresting these criminals. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just such a short-sighted way of looking at things. There's obviously complex factors that would cause that. And if you look no further than, you know, home ownership in the United States, you know, we're back to 1965 levels. Well, right. I'm from Detroit. What happened in 1967? You had significant protest that turned into riots because people were desperate and people were getting squeezed and what we see with the surveillance technology you know the SWAT teams were for the lower income neighborhoods and to you know it's been a mechanism which has harvested the wealth out of those neighborhoods through you know seizing assets well the surveillance technology is much more invasive and I think that that will be used for um you know, uh, more to, to extract the wealth from uh, the middle class neighborhoods. Well, what it, you know, so or not middle class, but it just all you know, yeah. everyone else in general. Once that uh, other population has fully been, you know, well uh, extracted. Well, one of the triggers for the violence in Ferguson was the fact that people of color, black people, were being ticketed 
and fined and et cetera yes. to, to a much greater degree than any other portion of the population. It was a form of mm-hmm. economic uh, oppression. And it was one of the sure. things that yeah. led to this violence. And, uh, and so yeah. what you're talking about is is exactly what is part of this concern that we should all we should all have about this. There are so many things. There was sure. one, there's one last thing, and it just stuck in my mind. And I can't get it out of my head. The demonstrations in Ferguson and the, the and Anderson Cooper, that little that little section of the film where he's walking along with some of the protesters, and there are police right walking right behind him, and they're telling people that they can't slow down. The police are forcing people to walk quickly through this section of town or the street. And they don't have their badges on, or they don't have their name identifications on. It's a force. It's a. It's a. It was a way of intimidating these people and violating their civil rights to a peaceful protest. I just yes. was. I was. I mean, it was a technique I, well, I never would have thought of, but it also it 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 goes right to the heart of, of just well, the police really don't want you to demonstrate peacefully or not because it just gums up their life and they don't really want it. There's this natural inclination for order. And 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 so it, in the process, you, we're heading down a bad road. <laughs> I don't want. I feel like I'm just sort of spewing here uh, at you, Craig. But I, I just well, there's so I, many. I hear you. I mean, that's not a too dissimilar response from people that um, have seen it. It's very shocking in, in that sense. That yeah, and, and and you're right. That was a, an intimidation tactic, especially yeah. because there's no there's no provision in the Constitution that you can you know freely. But only if you're walking down the street. No, you can do that anywhere in, in, in the world that you would like to do. And so <laughs> it was a way to start breaking up the protests artificially right. and, and not, not not allowing dissent. And that's essentially what we saw across the board yeah. with the police departments in Ferguson. You know, they didn't facilitate the protest. The, the, the community was speaking up because they felt they had a legitimate reason to protest, and they were met with the full force of a SWAT team rather than the typical protocol, which would be put the plainclothes officers out there, help to facilitate the protest. And people have a right to speak. And, you know, it was, you know, the first moment where we had seen this heavy level of equipment being rolled out. And just goes to show that there wasn't um, any sufficient training to, to go along with the equipment. And it, so, you know, it, yeah. again, created the perfect storm. Yes. And what did the governor do? He calls in the National Guard. Right. I mean, right. it goes so far. It goes so far, you know, up and down the chain of command here. Uh, I, I thank you so much for being here today. I, I've taken a lot of your time up. Uh, the The film is uh, Do Not Resist, uh, and it is opening today, October 14th, at the Lemley Monica Center Film Center in Santa Monica, as well as the Lemley Playhouse in Pasadena. The director is Craig Adkinson. Craig, thank you so much for the film, and thank you so much for being here on Film School. Thank you. I really appreciated talking with you. All the best. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.